This is the last coffee house, and we are done with the year 2019. We are done with the decade of 2010 to 2019. And we've got a nice looking number, nice looking number year now, 2020, which seems to be, and this could be some chronocentrism at work, of course, but seems to be a momentous, very important year. <laughs> when I was a kid, I read this book that was about algorithms predicting when economic downturns and world wars were, would occur and all that sort of thing. And one of the major predictions that it made was that in somewhere between late 2020 and 2024, there's going to be another world war like on par with the first two. <laughs> and that's going to be the result of a bunch of, of the confluence of a whole bunch of different factors that stagger amongst each other because people have these weird ideas, the indelible stamp of our lowly origins these weird ideas that come from superstitions about you know even numbers and and the way that uh and like presidential cycles and other election cycles and economic cycles like they take numbers on the decade they look at them differently so it, it leads to a whole bunch of stuff so this book predicted that and it's something that's always been in my head since i read it however long a long time ago so uh, now i'm wondering i'm wondering if that's coming about of course right now just to date this there's some stuff going on in iran iran's been doing a lot actually to go the United States into a fight like shooting down recon planes the attack on Saudi oil facilities there's this whole issue with our embassy going on now so it seems like there's something going on there and it probably I remember I read this book was I don't think it was called detente but it was called something but it was it was an excellent book that talked about how so much of international policy is based on domestic politics it's using it as a means to work on domestic politics so a lot of the times when you see a country going after a foreign country it's because they're trying to shore up significant problems they have in their own country and of course Iran they had the whole nuclear deal they've been and that's gone now and they've been subjected to a bunch of sanctions there's a bunch of civil unrest now so you wonder if that has a lot to do with all of this international grandstanding. And Trump, President Trump does not seem like he's had every opportunity and he seems like he's so, he's anti-warmongering. He's not in that megalomaniacal stance where he might be when it comes to economics and business in general. When it comes to war, it's a different situation, which drives war hawks up the wall. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just uh, so that's just just in general talking about that. We'll see what happens in 2020. It's going to be it's going to be a crazy year. I'm hoping it will be the beginning of the best decade in history and the best year I've ever experienced. But we will see. What I want to do with this episode, I just want to talk about the books that we looked at, the books that we've read so far and not in depth or anything like that, just kind of recover a lot of them. And as I'm looking at the list of the books that I recorded as having read, I miss a couple because I'm looking at my Goodreads list, the ones that I made sure to record on Goodreads and, and review on Goodreads, or at least say I started reading them or whatever. And I may have missed a couple when it comes to making an episode about them. However, so we have, we've got a, one of the early ones was Dead Center, a political book. It was by Jason Altmeyer. He was a congressman for two terms, I think. And he, or yeah, two terms maybe, but he was a Democrat and he talks about the political polarization. Was he a Democrat? I think he was a Democrat. I can't remember now. He was, whatever the case, he was a moderate. He was definitely center, uh, center left, center right. And he talked about some really important details about how Congress people used to share quarters. They used to go to the same gyms. They used to go to the same clubs. And a lot of those shared experiences were the kind of lubrication <laughs> 
for being able to work together, realizing that people are people, that they have families, that they have, you know, interests and disinterests, and, and you can't just other them and just push them to the other side and not work together to try to do what's best for the country. And he's he says now it's just really not like that, that there are internal organizations that on both sides that specifically make sure that you don't work with the other side. As far as I remember, and I could be just reading from the future now into this, but as far as I remember, he talked about how it was more prevalent on the Democratic side that the there were these leftist machines, especially driven by like Pelosi, that specifically ostracize any Democrat that steps out of line and tries to get them removed from office in the next election cycle. So it's just, it's an important thing to understand that the people who govern us are people. Uh, you know, they uh, have all the same foibles and limitations and cognition errors that any other person has. And especially when it comes to, these are just people who happen to be more popular than whoever ran against them. And they tend to be pretty vain anyway because they're politicians, just like actors. If you're after that kind of a profession, you're probably pretty vain in the first place. Not to disparage everybody who's, who's ever worked in Congress. Uh, I'm sure a good percentage of them just wanted, they think they could do a better job and want to be able to do that job. But whatever the case, now when you have this exacerbating factor of separating people on party lines completely, and now we run into a lot of the other problems that come in later books that talk about how people are clustering based on their political affiliations and whatever ideas they already have. It's just, it's a hotbed. It's a real problem. And so it's it was good to read that book. Another one, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which in retrospect, it has absolutely terrible storytelling. It really does. When it comes to the characters, writing of the characters, the way the things happened, the superficiality of the supporting characters, and the way that it's primarily about the exaltation of the protagonist, uh, who's the stand-in for the author, rather than the mechanics of storytelling or plot or depth of character or interest in complex topics. It's more just about emotional validation of the author via the character. But looking back on it, after having read some other books that we get to later, I actually have more fondness for this now because there were a lot of more creative things that were going on in this book than a lot of the books. And this was written in what? I mean, this was like early 19th or 20th century, early 20th century. And it was really unique. I mean, it's really just a, a romantic, it's a romance. Like I said, it has some pretty stereotypical and, and superficial writing mechanics, but the setup's great. The setup's excellent. It doesn't overstate or overindulge in just issue, boring issue writing. It's it's more about, I just want to tell my story and I'm going to put it into this context and tell the story, which is, it's refreshing in a way. And that's why I look back on it with more affection after having read some other books. I, I really do appreciate what she was doing and trying to do. It's got a lot more to it than a lot of books, than most books. And it's it just does things in a, it has a lot of creative positives to it. So it's much appreciated. And it's something like the imagery has definitely stuck with me since after I read it. So that's, I mean, that's a real positive. You know, it's it's frustrating that <laughs> a lot of the writing was so terrible. Oh, but plus the, like I said, when it comes to creativity, just the, the language, the ability to write that language <laughs> in the colloquial dialect was so much fun to read. It was so much fun to read. I just thought it was put together really, really well. And that alone makes it something that people should read at some point. <laughs> but other than that, like I said, uh, it's got a lot of weak mechanical aspects to it, but it has some some real creative positive. Uh, the History of Tom Jones. I don't know if I ever did an episode on this, but I think I hated the book, and I don't remember anything about it, and I hate it, and I never want to talk about it again. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll refresh my memory at some point. Uh, I know it was part of the 100 greatest of all time, but I think I was just bored. And I know some other people said it was it was found fantastic, and I loved it. And I think they thought it was funny and that sort of thing. But I just I remember being totally bored, not not wanting to read it. Could have been in a mood, but who knows? Breaking the Spell by Daniel Den- Daniel Dennett just I think he calls himself a philosopher. So what you end up with is a lot of talk, and you don't get much out of it. And this book it was important as part of the new atheism for horsemen religion as a as a natural phenomenon it it seems like most of those books now they seem really quaint because it's like yeah obviously now uh but that might be to their credit i think like i said in the review but he mostly was like oh we need to start a conversation about it uh, how it's a natural phenomenon and he offers a little bit in the way of uh, this is what i think you know how i think it developed or whatever but it's just there's not enough meat on his books in general that make it worth going through you know the 300 or 400 pages of it it just i don't know it's frustrating i started gargantuan pantagruel i'm still working on it it's like 10,000 pages it's ridiculous and i'm gonna finish the damn thing it's part of the 100 greatest works of all time it's french and it's just interminable it just keeps going and keeps going and i don't know what the point is and i'm just i'm trying to get through it i'm i'm really trying i'm trying to pull some themes out of it i'm i'm doing my best but no promises this one might break me it might break me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh, Leaf Storm and Other Stories by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel is by Francois Rabelais. Leaf Storm is by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's the first thing I ever read by him, and it's fantastic. There's a story about an angel and these people trying to take care of the angel that just shows up, and he's all dirty and disgusting, and they're trying to take care of it, and the town's trying to figure out what's going on and what to do with this angel, and people aren't happy about it and come to look at it, and it's... I mean, so resonant, so interesting. I love it to death. Like I said, it was my first introduction to the magical realism of Mar- of Garcia Marquez, and it is just fantastic. I would love to be able to just sit and talk for hours about just his work. Uh, just that story, I could talk for hours. High, high quality there. I don't remember much of the other stories, though. Against Empathy was one we read by Paul Bloom. And I think I remember that one being really vague and not really accomplishing a whole lot. Although questioning the validity of using empathy as a method for determining what's best, I 100% behind that. And I think he makes a a valid case. There are a lot of good ideas going on, but there's just, there's not enough, again, there's not enough meat there. There's not enough rigorous establishment of the premise. It's just, there's not enough there. It it was too vague and it didn't accomplish all that much. I read Death of a Salesman. Did I do an episode on that? I think I had, there were a number of positives, negatives. Uh, There were things about the character i think there were some contrived setups one thing about plays is usually you don't have just like likable characters just getting along like you have in movies where there are a bunch of likable characters and then there's a bad character and then you go along go on from there in death of a salesman you know it's the point to have some kind of flawed character that you're trying to figure out what's going on here and and you wonder how all that's going to resolve itself and you have the kid who's really the protagonist who's realizing that you know we're not any not to give it all away but (laughs) that we're not anything special and it really was of the moment but it still has resonance uh, i mean thinking about it now there's there are really a lot of important ideas that come out of it but it's something that might only be meaningful to americans and people who understand that era of america where you're trying to distinguish yourself and you realize you're not distinguishable and maybe that's i mean there could have been a, a reaction to that that led to kind of our culture nowadays that just says no everybody literally every single person is distinguishable they're all their own worlds and they're all 
perfect in their own worlds and the most important thing. Who knows, but it's still an important moment in writing history and in American history. The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. It is the moderate liberal Bible and... (laughs) They love it to death. I had, I took an issue, I thought, I think it was pretty vague in a number of areas and didn't have all that much that that was super helpful when it came to trying to fix a lot of the things, the problems that are pointed out. It was pretty biased too, I think, politically, because it was trying to say like, liberals need to do these things that Republicans do well and you need to do these things so you can win more. But I can't remember all the details. I mean, obviously I have an episode on it and you can listen to that if you want to know more about it. But he has a bunch of ideas about how people come to political political decisions and determinations and how it's not a rational process and there's like what is it riding the elephant isn't an elephant i can't remember now (laughs) but there's the rider and then there's the the elephant you can't really direct it but you think you are and um so a whole bunch of that stuff going on which for the most part i'm behind him on that there are a lot of these kinds of books that are just kind of generalized sociological and psychological phenomenon they'll just kind of cite a couple of studies here and there and just say ah that's fine that's that's enough but there needs to be more rigor or something and more detailed ideas about what these things mean or those things mean or what we need to do. I don't know. There just needs to be more to it. It's frustrating. And then he has all of his, I can't even remember what he described them as, but there are all the couplets of things, you know, the people, the values that people have and how you either value one or the other more and that'll determine which politics you kind of fit in. So anyway, that's that's the book. I read The Stranger by Albert Camus. That was quality that was something uh, it's really depressing <laughs> it's uh, the it's so interesting though because it's got a protagonist that has deliberately all the things that happen to a person all the major life tent poles that happen to a person Camus makes sure to hit those with this protagonist it's the embodiment of absurdism uh, which Camus subscribed to to some degree as opposed to existentialism existentialism is like there's no meaning in the universe and I'm sad about there being any meaning in the universe absurdism is like there's no meaning in the universe but I don't care it's all a joke to me so who cares <laughs> so so it's kind of in the embodiment of that it's it's well written it's got interesting setup and set pieces and all that it's definitely it deserves a place in the top 100 books of all time unlike Henry Fielding whatever but I really enjoyed it I really I, I hadn't read it before so it was nice to finally get to read it the big sort was one of those that struck me more than I thought it would. I thought it was at least a little more rigorous than a lot of the books that we talk about. And it talked about how people are clustering on the basis of shared political opinions now. And this is just a long-term phenomenon over decades and decades. People just have started moving to places that share their political ideologies. So then that encourages them to be more radical in those political ideologies. It could be a function of distinguishing themselves. You know, it's this arms race of... (laughs) I wonder, I don't know if anybody studied this, but just an arms race when it comes to political opinions. And But when it comes to this book, The Big Sort by Bill Bishop, this is talking about how people will cluster on that basis and then they just reinforce each other. And that's much of the reason likely that we have such polarization nowadays. And again, these are massively complex phenomena. So it's really tough to just try to come to a causal conclusion or anything like that. But I think this probably has a huge impact on why it's 
it's so much more polarized now than it was then, along with just the arms race of like norm breaking in political circles and with our politicians in Washington. There's a deliberate escalation where you try to get a little bit of advantage, a little bit of advantage until you're so far from where you ever have been, you know, where you were 50 years ago or something like that. You don't even realize it. It's just like boiling the frog. I think it's probably an important book. I would love to see a new one come out that analyzed, you know, what's going on statistically now, but it was good. It's a good way to think about it. There's Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions. I don't remember a whole bunch. All these are like blending together now because they use a bunch of the same studies to try to make the same points. I think there were a couple of good ideas in that. I know I read it around when it came out, but I can't remember all the particulars. That might have been my introduction to rationalistic paternalism or what's called now, I think, libertarian paternalism. But that might have been my introduction to it, actually, uh, where it's you nudge people in the right. The government doesn't force you to do something. It just nudges you in one way or another. So it's less coercive than, you know, a different kind of method to get people to do better things. It's having to opt out of your 401k rather than opt in or having to opt out of being an organ donor rather than to opt in. Much more people statistically will just leave it opted in because they don't have to do anything beyond that. So I'm generally an advocate of that to the extent that it can be done without the government thinking that it can be more coercive than just nudging people in one way or another. And especially when it comes to the government just, say, nudging people in the way of one political party over another or one particular policy over another or something like that. It's just, you have to be really careful with that because it's a bunch of stuff that people aren't going to be cognizant of and now the government's just delving into, you know, our subconscious psychology. It's just, it's concerning is what it is. So 100 Years of Solitude, I still have not done an episode on that because it's so massive and so complex and so interesting. I mean, I should just read it a couple more times and then really do an episode. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Jesus Interrupted, I started it. I ha- I've read it once before. I started it again and I haven't finished it. It's sitting next to my bed. <laughs> It's by Bart Ehrman, and it just talks about contradictions in the Bible and what Jesus said and what we know about what Jesus said and all that. And now it seems a little, I mean, back in the day, Bart Ehrman was like everything. Uh, He was just like, everybody loved hearing from him. Oh my gosh, all these things about the Bible and nobody knew. Now, again, it seems a little quaint, maybe because he did too good of a job of telling us about him. But he just represents like the mainstream view on this stuff. He's not like this radical, brilliant scholar about the Bible who's got all this new things to say about it it's just this is the mainstream ideas about what where this stuff came from what we know about what jesus said and didn't say and what he meant and all that stuff so again get there eventually thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman one of my favorite books that i read in 2019 it was quality had a lot of complex things a lot of complex ideas a lot of novel undertakings when it came to understanding why people do what they do and novel concepts about ways to communicate how that works you know the system one versus system two thinking or analyzing and how that speeds up or slows down our analysis and how that affects the way that we see the answers to problems. And I just remember liking it a lot and it's probably the best out of any of these types of books that I've read so far. Alienated America was one of those really annoying things that I generally agree with the conclusions, but the methodology getting there, I mean, the was so annoyingly shoddy. It just, it was a distraction from most anything else. And it mostly just had an agenda that 
that it was trying to peddle, which was get more religion out there <laughs> so we could have better communities. Uh, but all these things are such complex ideas, and the author didn't seem to have much of an interest in any of the particulars when it came to actually figuring out what's true. It was just, you know, use vague statistics, a vague study here and there, and just say, oh, look at my massive conclusion that I'm drawing from this vague stuff, even though I have no expertise in any of these fields. So it was frustrating going through it. There were a number of things that were big questions uh, that could seriously undermine any kind of conclusions he came to. Like I said, I like the general conclusion. I mean, even just religion in general, if you're just talking about utility, you know, versus what's true, I mean, obviously anybody who listens to me should know my perspective on religion. I think it's all nonsense and it's clearly obviously nonsense from whatever perspective you want to come from from any argument you want to use i'm happy to go after any of those and if i didn't think that i could not just defeat any of those arguments but absolutely demolish any of those arguments then i wouldn't be rejecting it so stridently (laughs) but i I definitely do but even having said that i do think that utility of religion i would absolutely rather take a christian country that has a whole bunch of christians that believe in a bunch of nonsense but they also have strong community and they help each other and support each other and and want to build families around ideas where you know the kids are more important than the parents and that you can't be completely selfish and and you follow these kind of general moral precepts that come out of the new testament and the old testament the positive ones not (laughs) some of the stranger ones so i'm perfectly fine with that i i have no problem with that it's just the methodology here was so shoddy it was really frustrating then we go on to hashtag republic by Cass sunstein and this is one that i it's seemed like it said virtually nothing the whole book and it was frustrating to go through it i think there were a couple of decent ideas but again it's one of those do you need 300 pages to say this do you need an entire book could this have honestly just been an article you know somewhere and it would have said everything that needed to be said i mean i know he said he said something about having social media companies post contradictory evidence to something somebody was reading or a contradictory opinion so if you're you read all liberal sources then you'll get a republican source if if you read all republican sources you'll get a liberal source and i just said republican and liberal instead of like democrat and republican or liberal conservative so just combine those in the way that makes the most sense (laughs) But so he said something about that, and that's, I mean, fine, pie-in-the-sky kind of idea. I I mean, I think it's it would be great if that was at least an option. I know people have talked about it before, and when I've gone to, like, discussions about politics or whatever, people have talked about how they would love it if they could just turn on a button that said, okay, what's the contrary opinion to whatever I'm reading right now? It behooves the tech companies to keep people on the platform by making them feel the best that they can while they're on that platform. That doesn't mean giving them the hard truths about what's going on in the world you know that means uh just reinforcing whatever needs to be reinforced so that they'll stay there so it's highly unlikely and it's a suggestion but i don't know that the book actually accomplished a whole lot anyway moving on virginia wolf to the lighthouse one of the greatest books of all time however keep in mind and it contrasts very clearly with the book that follows it that it's it's structured thematically it's about the thematics it's not about the storytelling Uh, it's not about characters or complex characters it's about the themes being presented that Virginia Woolf wants to present and it's about the beautiful language and episodic nature of the book and a bunch of ideas uh, that are very interesting and uh, depicted in an interesting way so it's it's not one of those ah pleasant you're just gonna choke it down and feel better about yourself and feel like I read a book and now I'm happy let's go out into the sunshine kind of a book it's it takes more work than that (laughs) so I don't know how many people have read it or are gonna want to read it but 
It's it's definitely one of the best. It absolutely deserves its place in the canon. It's fantastic. She's an incredible writer, and no matter the thematic implications or the ideas, and this is something I want to reinforce to no end. I don't care if she's saying kill all men, if that's like her ultimate conclusion to her thematics or whatever, or what she believes in real life or did believe. If she writes prose this interesting and this fantastic, if she has ideas that are depicted in a way that's extremely creative, it doesn't matter what those things are saying. This is a, a piece of artistic work, and I thoroughly enjoy it, and I will definitely be reading it again. So, in contrast to that, we have Ian Forster, Room with a View, which is more of kind of a straightforward thematic background, but more just, oh, I'm telling a, a generic story and getting a couple of themes across too, and it's fine. It's pleasant. It's easy to read. It's easy to digest. It's something that you could still at least go a little bit further than simply, uh, it's just a story about a woman, you know, who was getting married and then didn't want to marry that person because she's making her own choices now. The characters are relatively shallow. Uh, there's a little bit more meat on them than something that's so thematically driven like to the lighthouse, but they're pretty shallow still. They, they're mostly there to fill a role for purposes of the thematics for the protagonist. So the protagonist is supposed to get married. She's following all the conventions. And at the time this was written, I mean, this was written around the time that To the Lighthouse was written as well. So at the time this was written, though, this was still a novel concept that a woman gets to decide. I don't want to follow this, you know, trajectory that my family's put me on or history's put me on. I want to make a decision for myself. Uh, the guy doesn't really matter. It's just a matter of her getting to make a decision for herself. But that's her decision that she picks the guy who is a representation of that instead of the guy who was the one she was driven by society and by her family and her friends that she, that was the person she was supposed to marry. Uh, it's got some really, <laughs> it's got some memorable situations. It's often very funny, legitimately funny. And so it's one of those books, like I could pick it up anytime and start reading it. It's just really pleasant. It's really easy. It's digestible. It's nice. So, so that's a room with a view. And in contrast to both of those, An American Marriage by Tayari Jones, <laughs> which... Had a good setup. I was interested, so very interested in the setup because the idea was that you have a couple, a newlywed couple. The guy gets arrested, you know, based on racist pretenses. He didn't do it. He's in jail for a while. It deteriorates their marriage and then they he comes out of jail and they have to figure out what to do based on that. What we got was unbelievably generic. One of the least creative explorations of this kind of a topic that I've seen. There are so many reasons. You'd have to... Li listen to the episode that I did and I'm sure I didn't cover all of them but the writing's absolutely horrendous it's it's as amateurish as you could ever imagine in a book that's widely circulated and widely lauded as far as I know I mean, it uses all these cliches it does this goofy I'm gonna reference every TV show thing uh, you know as some kind of a thematic which is just annoying it's like no look it's America it's it's just completely annoying because it's just they just plug them in the, the the writer she just plugs them in like oh there's another one there's another one there's another one. It has no sense of different characters being different people. They all feel like the same person. The whole purpose of the whole edifice is just the glorification of the protagonist, who's just a stand-in for the author. It bails on any complex ideas about anything and ends up just being a completely uninspired, take-you-by-the-hand story that would just be... I mean, you could you could tell it in 10 minutes of anything of significance in this story. It's, it's so... It's so terrible. 
terrible. It's absolutely so terrible. Anybody who disagrees with me, I am happy to debate it 100%. But this book doesn't, it doesn't have anything interesting to say. It doesn't have anything, any interesting exploration of women entrepreneurship or incarceration or just when it comes to family and dealing with family or marriage or anything like that. No interesting anything about that. It's just a completely generic, oh, well, I have this set up. Let's get it resolved. Okay, done. Pay me some money. It's so terrible. It's absolutely terrible. How Democracies Die, What History Reveals About Our Future by Stephen Levitsky. This was another absolutely trash book that was horrible, horrendous. I was trying to draw so many vague parallels based on pure ideological bias. It was it was just completely worthless. There's virtually nothing in there that was worth reading. It was really frustrating. I was looking forward to it. I thought it'd be a rigorous study of what actually happens to democracies when they fall into monarchy or something like that. It's just a polemic. It's just a, a ridiculous polemic because they hate Trump so much that they want to call him all the worst things and, and draw parallels between him and the worst people. And, and it's just, it's completely biased when it comes to like saying, oh, these are the things like norm breaking. That's something. And look at the norm breaking that the Republicans are doing while completely ignoring the other side or just making the other side's norm breaking as innocuous as possible. And you'll have to listen to my discussion of how democracies die because I go into detail. I mean, there are so many things that they could have easily pulled out of anywhere when it came to examples of norm breaking that would go against their ideological side that they just decided to ignore because obviously, I mean, it's really frustrating because it's something that could have been really useful and interesting at this point in history to determine actually, okay, what happened in Venezuela, you know? What what happened in other countries where they had thriving democracies that eventually failed? What happened there really based on the numbers, based on all the information that we could possibly get based on the changes in sentiment amongst the populace? What actually happened there so we can avoid it? But it wasn't like that. It was just a polemic. So anyway, you can go listen to that if you want to. World Order by Henry Kissinger. Actually a lot better than I thought. I know Kissinger is heavily demonized by one of my favorites. <laughs> Christopher Hitchens did not like Kissinger. But I, I liked it more than I thought I would. It was pretty broad. You know, it started with the Westphalian idea of sovereignty between states and then goes through a bunch of different countries, you know, the United States, China, Japan, and talks about how those uh, states have functioned historically, how they're functioning now, what they should do in the future. I mean, this, obviously, Kissinger has a lot of experience in this area, so you get a lot more detail. He's a Nixon apologist, too, when it came to Nixon. Nixon did all these great things and and just take it easy on him, uh, which is fine. But it was kind of nice getting his perspective on it because you could tell he had a lot of experience thinking about and dealing with these countries. Obviously, the nature of our relationship with these countries, the United States, ours being the United States, and the country's relationship with each other, it's such a complex area. It's so massive. Uh, if you're going to talk about it at all, it's pretty tough to talk about it just period. So to have somebody with this much expertise, at least, at least know a lot about it, whether you agree with his conclusions or the politics or not it's still at least there's more to it than you would think would be to it so that's that's nice that's that's good not perfect or anything like that and you do kind of get sick of the survey kind of posture where it's just like oh here's basic history but a lot of the basic history i didn't know about a lot of these countries so <laughs> 
just like when it comes to it came to opening up trade in China and Japan and how that works and how isolationist China was for a long time and and the reasons they were isolationists and the conflicts between all the countries in that part of the world and all of that was interesting to learn about. So so that was good. The castle, uh, I hate it because Kafka is one of my you know if I had to say my top three writers that I love for all time, Kafka is one of them. And the castle, I just didn't like. I didn't get into it. He didn't finish it, so maybe he would have gone through and changed a bunch of it or something like that. But I just I couldn't get into it. I wasn't it wasn't grabbing me the way that like Metamorphosis or The Trial did. It, it just wasn't grabbing me, and it seemed to have a lot of the same ideas. The castle was about Kay, who ends up in this place. He goes there and he tells the people, "Okay, I've, I was sent for, and I'm here to do you know this job that I was sent for." And they're like, "We didn't send for you." And the rest of the book is him going through all these bureaucracies of trying to figure out what he's there for and and what he should do and dealing with the people. There are a lot of ideas that seem like precursors to 1984 by Orwell. So that was awesome to see kind of that connection when it came to the way the populace just seemed kind of brainwashed, but it was in more of a, you know, Kafka-esque philosophically broad way than a direct big brother kind of way. But there were a lot of things actually that were precursors to 1984. So that was kind of cool. Hell's Angels. I started it. I'm still reading it. <laughs> I have the book. That's another one I have next to my bed by Hunter S. Thompson. I keep hating it and then liking it and hating it and loving it. And it just goes back and forth. So I don't know where I'm going to end up on it, but it is, I don't know. He has this style that I thought it'd be really interesting prose. And then it just kind of dumbed down really quickly, but it goes, it has so much detail about how these Hell's Angels members work and what they think and what's important to them and not important to them and how they deal with media and all that stuff that it's just kind of fun. I don't know. It was just fun. Uh, the Looming Tower, one of the best books I read in 2019. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic about Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden and how that all developed and had so many details and it was so carefully put together and carefully crafted to be objective and just tell a story and it told a story well. It was just, I mean, all around. It was just one of the best for sure that I read this, this year and I just really, really enjoyed it and definitely recommend it. Political Tribes. Who was the Amy Chu? Oh my gosh, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible i cannot believe it's one of those preening disdainful liberal elite i'm gonna pretend to be objective thing it was it was really really bad it first it barely tried to explain anything it's just like if they would have been more aware of tribalism when it came to vietnam then it would have gone so much better okay like based on what uh, what should they have done what would have gone better Are you just you're just talking to talk it talks about afghanistan and vietnam and iraq right and uh, goes through those and how if they would have just been more aware of tribalism or like General Petraeus when he took heed of the tribal conflicts between them then that was something and then she talks about America and how the tribalism here takes it as axiomatic in foreign countries but here she like challenges it and demonizes conservative positions while apologizing for or just not even criticizing at all liberal positions it's and then goes through a litany of just vague liberal positions oh look here's my virtue and it's just it was pointless it was terrible there's nobody needs to read it it's again just tossing her hat in and saying oh look at me i can i can restate generic virtuous things too and have a vague thesis about tribalism and, and i've got a book now go buy it oh, whatever on the road jack Kerouac. So good, so quality, so important in the canon. I can absolutely understand why people wouldn't just enjoy reading it. I absolutely love reading it. Although I love listening to it more than I love reading it now. <laughs> 
the pros is it's not the manicured pro i'm sure i just did an episode on this so everybody knows but it's it's not the manicured pros that you find in other books like wolf or nabokov or somebody like that it's it's not the kind of pros that you're reading and like oh my gosh it's so amazing although it does have the greatest quote in all of literature at least personally uh, the one that i love the most but it's very it's it's the jazz equivalent you know if shakespeare's classical music then on the road is jazz it's it's really improvisational it goes here and there it's jumping to this place jumping to that place it has this high and this low and it's just racing through it and like i said it's a really important entry in the canon that embodies the whole beatnik culture and so good and so interesting i'm so glad it exists and i'll be reading it again sometime in the future sapiens uh, probably the most disappointing book that i (laughs) I read because it was so lauded just everywhere the righteous mind was lauded all over the place and i just didn't think it was all that great uh you know but i liked things about it and i thought it it made a real effort but sapiens is one of those that was just so vague and so basic that there really didn't seem like a point to it if i contrast it with the righteous mind just if you go out with a friend and the friend is way less attractive than you (laughs) then by comparison (laughs) you're gonna look great if i put sapiens up against the righteous mind i really you know i'm buying the righteous mind a drink sapiens just doesn't have anything to really say it's really frustrating so it felt like a waste of time reading the whole damn thing and i don't think anybody really needs to read it i think you could just go read a synopsis of it i think it's really accessible because it has so many generic things that people are aware of in history so uh you could just you can go read it and be like oh i'm aware of that and i feel so educated now Uh, you know it's one of those i'm reading basic economics i'm reading basic economics by thomas soul it's so good i but it's really long and i'm just i'm getting through it you know i can't read about economics every day I just, I can't do it. It's really interesting and really well written. And it's already, I'm not that far into it, but it's blowing my mind when it comes to how simply it's establishing these ideas and how to look at these ideas. So I'm loving it to death. I just, you know, I'll get through it eventually. Letters to a Young Contrarian. Christopher Hitchens. I love Christopher Hitchens. I'm almost done with this. I'm going to read it a couple times though. Because it's it's more about the words of wisdom and the pearls of wisdom than it is about imparting information and the writing style you know Hitchens is a very good writer so it's just it's fun to read and we'll see what I get out of it the road to wagon pier is the first one that I am doing in another reading list we have a new reading list coming up so look forward to that I know Sam Harris still has like 150 books left on his reading list (laughs) But still, uh, we've got a new one coming up. And I just did Good to Great, right? I already did that one. I just did an episode on it, which had a bunch of good ideas. Uh, we'll see how they play out. I think I was pretty generous in my review when it came to that one. So that was 2019. I mean, that was 2019. And we've got some stuff coming up in 2020. We're going to keep going on the books. We're going to up the stakes when it comes to the books. <laughs> I made a goal of getting through 60 books this year in the midst of everything else. So we'll hopefully get there and we'll see how 2020 goes i'm pretty i'm pretty excited about this i i'm really excited about this year i hope that everybody's and this decade i hope that everybody's feeling good feeling pumped ready to go it's time to push this species into the next gear and just get to that approximate utopia that we can have so we'll see we'll see if we get there all right (laughs) i hope it all is well happy new year oh my gosh happy new decade let's do this all right thanks bye (laughs)